you yet. I'm Greg Nicholson, the, the lead pastor, and uh, get the opportunity to share from God's Word with you this morning. We've been working our way through the book called The Story and basing our messages on that. We took a bit of a break for the summer months because we had finished the Old Testament section, and now this is our second week on the New Testament. So it's chapter 23 today, and if you don't have a copy of The Story yet, we have complimentary copies back at our welcome center. So Jesus is finally born. And when he is, he brings change. He changes everything. And after telling the story of his birth, the gospel writers just kind of push the fast forward button because not much else is said about Jesus until he begins his ministry at the age of 30. And his ministry only lasted three years. But in three years, he was able to do things that changed the history of the world. Well, I want to read what James Allen Francis wrote, just so I get it all straight. So he describes the life of Jesus this way. Jesus was born in an obscure village, the child of a poor peasant couple. He worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never visited a big city. He didn't write a book. He never held an office. He had no family. He owned no home. He did none of the things that we think of when we think of greatness. And yet 19 centuries have come and gone, and he is the central figure of the human race. And all the armies that have ever marched, and all the navies that have ever sailed, and all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned, and all the presidents that have ever been elected, put together, have not affected life on this earth as much as the, this one man. Jesus changed things. And you'll notice on our first slide here that he changed everything. A couple of weeks ago, I had a visit from Jim Sullivan. And Jim is the deputy returning officer for the Halifax West Federal Electoral District. You say that after me? It's a tongue twister. But we're going to have a federal election by basically October of next year. So he is out scouting locations to hold election polls at. And he just loves our building. And the renovations that we've done, he said we could fit 10 to 12 polls in here. And then I asked him, okay, how many people normally would come and vote at a poll? He told me. And my math is still okay. Like 2,500 to 3,000 people will come through our doors sometime next fall. So I got excited about that. And then he mentioned the money, and I thought, wow, we could use that to help pay off our debt as well. But it's getting people through the door. And as I was meeting with him, I started thinking, you know, next year we're going to hear all these campaign speeches. They're all going to promise hope. They're going to promise change. And I started thinking about Jesus from a political viewpoint, and I realized that he was the one who brought hope to the world. He was the one who brought change. So how did he do it? How did he change the course of human history so dramatically? When he was born, everyone thought that he would be a political savior, that he'd bring about a political revolution. But after all, their problems were political problems. So doesn't it make sense that political problems are going to be answered by politics? 
And when we talk about politics, we're thinking of power. We're thinking of position. But that's not what Jesus had in mind at all. He had something totally different in mind. But the Jews of Jesus' day, they were desperate for this type of change. Things had to change. They were under Roman occupation. They had been suffering for years. And no matter how tough we might think it is here at times with our politicians and not getting the answers we want, it's nothing compared to what the Jews of Jesus' day were experiencing under Roman authority. And these people cared about their nation. And they wanted to see some changes take place. And they were waiting for the Messiah to come. So they could just kind of take back the nation. Now we're concerned about our own country. We look and, and we see the morals that just seem to be going lower and lower. We see random acts of violence taking place. And for some reason, we're becoming kind of immune to what we see in the morality of our country. It happens so much, we just kind of accept it as second nature. And then economics, we seem to be doing okay right now, but we pay so much in taxes. And then just yesterday in the paper, it meant, showed a graph, the number of people becoming 65 in 15 years' time, it's like this, and the number of people that we have in Nova Scotia in the workforce by that same year is going to be like that. So we aren't going to have enough people working to help pay all the social benefits that we have. So we have a lot of concerns. But no matter what we're experiencing, these are nothing in comparison to what these guys were going through. And they were desperate for change, economically, socially, and politically. Now there would occasionally be a rebellion. Some of the Jews would rebel against the Romans, and the result would be you would see Jews crucified. There would be dozens of them. Sometimes there would be thousands of them. And they would be hung on crosses, lined up all along the roads through Palestine. So every time they tried to rebel, it was met with that type of response. So the Romans regarded the Jews as somewhere between animals and slaves, and they treated them as such. So they were desperate for a Messiah for someone to come along and change all of that. So the question was, when the Messiah does come, which political path is he going to choose? Because just like today, we had numerous political parties that you can vote for, and back then we had a number of them as well. The first one were the Zealots. Now these guys were extremists, and they wanted to bring about change by any means necessary even violence, if that's what it meant. And their motto was, like, desperate times call for desperate measures. So a zealot would be in a crowd of people, and he would grab a knife, and he would sneak up to a Roman soldier, and he would stab him, and then run off in the crowd. That's the type of people they were. And they felt that the only chance for their world the only chance for change was to have a war and to fight one politically. And they were sure that when the Messiah came, that he wanted to be on their side because they were so committed. And one of these zealots actually became one of Jesus' twelve disciples, and that was a man by the name of Simon. Now there's another group called the Essenes. Well, they took a different path altogether. 
their approach was to withdraw from politics. It was to withdraw from their culture and, and get away from the Romans. So here was their motto, let's go to the wilderness. And that's what most of them did. They went and lived in the mountains. They got as far away as they could from what was going on within their community. And they were certain that when the Messiah came, he'd want to be on their side because they'd gotten away from all this junk and all this clutter. And surely he'd want to come and be on their side. And you know one of these scenes because he came down from the mountain, he was dressed in camel hair, he was eating locusts, and that was John the Baptist. Then you've got the Pharisees, which you're probably more familiar with, and they thought they could bring about political change by following all these rules and regulations. So their goal was to legislate morality. And here was their motto. Their motto was, we can force change on people by having enough of the right laws and rules and make people follow them. That's the way they thought they could govern. They tried to bring about change from the outside in, and it just wasn't working. But still, they thought when the Messiah comes, he's going to want to be one of us, because we follow the Ten Commandments, we follow all the other laws. Like we, We've been nailing them up all over the place so that everybody else can read them. And a noted Pharisee was Nicodemus. That was the man who came to Jesus after dark, and Jesus told him how he could be born again. And then finally we had the Sadducees. Now these guys didn't believe in life beyond this earth. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And when I went to uh, Maritime Christian College in Charlottetown, the jokes changed dramatically from the ones that I heard in high school. You can't repeat the ones you heard in high school, but they were much tamer at Maritime Christian College. Like someone would say, who's the shortest man in the Bible? Well, that was Nehemiah. And then someone else would go, no, it was Bildad the Shuhite. So, and talked him. And then we had this one about the Sadducees. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they were sad, you see. That was their way of remembering. Yeah, it's a major groaner, I know. But these guys decided that they would align themselves, for the most part, with the political power of the day. And their motto was, if you can't beat them, then join them. And they thought, surely the Messiah is going to want to become a part of us, because we're the ones that have the most influence with the Roman government, and we would have the quickest path to political power. But when the Messiah came, he didn't hook up with the Zealots, or the Essenes, or the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, he was his own party. He was on his own side. But people tried to push him into a political position of power. But he refuses. Now that doesn't mean that he wasn't political. Because someone comes along and they start talking about the kingdom. And they encourage you to be a part of their kingdom. But that is political language. But he refused politics. He didn't have anything to do with that because it was associated with position and with power. But people were constantly pushing him, and he wouldn't have anything to do with it. Like one example is we see in John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed 
The Bible says, well, it's actually in the little headline, the feeding of the 5,000. But we know it would have been at least 15 or, or 20,000. So he has just fed that crowd. The large crowd is together. It has the feel almost like a national nominating convention or something like that. And the people are thinking, this is when Jesus is going to announce that he's going to become our king. So we read in this chapter, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So he saw where this was going, so he withdrew from it because he didn't want anything to do with this at all. And then another example was when he came into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, riding on the back of the donkey. And once again, the people thought, okay, this is it. The coronation is going to take place in Jerusalem. But once again, it didn't happen. So finally, they realized that when he said his kingdom was not of this world, he actually meant it. And they killed him. They had hope for a while, but they couldn't stand the fact that he wasn't their type of king, and they killed him. Then they were always trying to get him to take that political path of position and power. And he would say, well, actually, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And they wouldn't understand that. So they'd say, when you take your rightful place, but when are you going to do that so things will change around here? When are you going to take back our nation? When are you going to break out? You know, you do that loaves and fishes thing again, and these people are going to just swarm after you. And Jesus says, well, okay, here it is. Like, we're going to love the people. Love. Does that mean we're going to overthrow them? No. It, it, it means we're going to love them. Okay, it means we're going to get angry at them, right? Uh, no, you guys just aren't getting this at all. Well, what if one of the Roman soldiers is my next-door neighbor? What happens? You love him, but he's an enemy. Well, pray for your enemies. And again and again, he rejects the power. He rejects the position. Now, it, it's easy to say that Jesus is always the answer to our problems that we have, and maybe Jesus is the solution to our political problems. And you're thinking, okay, it's easy to say that in church. You're a preacher. It's always easy to say Jesus is the answer. It's like back when we were kids in kids' church, and the teacher would ask a question. You weren't paying attention, but you yelled, Jesus! And, well, it might not be the right answer, but how could Jesus not be the right answer? So you get a little prize anyway. Yeah, I was smart enough to do that. Jesus was always the answer. But you know something? Jesus is always the answer to the issues that we're facing in our world today. So as Christians living in the country of Canada, we need to understand the example of Christ in bringing about hope and change in the world that we live in. And now I'm going to say something you think, okay, this doesn't come from a church either, but we should actually be involved in the political process. That's an obligation for Christians. That Jesus has said, I want you to be the salt of the earth, so that's penetrate into the world. I want you to be the light of the world. That means to be up there shining above everybody else so that we can be clearly seen. 
That means, you know, we live in a democracy right now. We, the people, are the government. Therefore, we have a vote. We have a say. It's not the best way. It's certainly not the most significant way. But it is the way. When Jesus is asked by his disciples, like, how do you pray? And this is a prayer maybe you've said hundreds of times. But it's a political prayer in how it begins. Look at Matthew 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. But that's political language, isn't it? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In that prayer, you're saying to Jesus, I want your kingdom to come, and I want it to come into my kingdom. I want it to invade this world. So how can you say that prayer and not be concerned about our country? But inevitably, people will say, why does the church talk about political issues? And the answer is that a lot of issues that are considered to be political are actually biblical. So the answer to a lot of the problems we're facing today, are, those answers are found in the Bible. That you can't even get three chapters into the Bible without the sanctity of life being understood and without marriage being defined. So when people say, that's a political issue, you say, well, actually, it's a biblical issue. And if you want to complain, complain to the politicians. They've made it a political issue, when really, it's a biblical issue. If you're a Christian, then everything's a biblical issue. When you say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life, that means he's going to be Lord over everything in your life. He's going to be Lord over the decisions that you make. He's going to be Lord over the money that you spend. He's going to be Lord over the relationships that you're involved in. He's going to be Lord over the entertainment that you enjoy. At the heart of the Christian faith is the Lordship of Christ. So we have an obligation to be a part of that. But let me also say that the political process is far from the best way to bring about change in our society. But the only hope for change isn't political, it's spiritual. The political process can bring about some change, but it comes from the outside in, because it's all about position of power. And Jesus understood, remember, it was just the opposite. It's from the inside out. And that's why he was so concerned with the heart. That's why he rejected that mantle of power, because he wasn't going to take that. He wasn't going to lord it above others and try to make them his servant. Because he said, how can I be the servant of all if I'm sitting in this position of power and authority? So again and again, he addresses the heart. Spiritual revival is the best way to effect change. Remember that. Spiritual revival is the best way to effect change in our world. So Jesus brought his disciples together and he sent them out. He didn't send them out as politicians. He sent them out not to overthrow governments, but he sent them out to advance his kingdom. A kingdom that isn't of this world. A kingdom where you love your enemies. A king and you pray for those who disagree with you. A kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. A kingdom where the greatest among you will be the least. A kingdom where you become great by being served 
excuse me, by serving instead of being served. A kingdom where the least among you are cared for, where you put others' needs ahead of your own, where the humble are exalted and the exalted will be humble. A kingdom where the meek inherit the earth. In the rise of early Christianity was a book written by Rodney Stark. And at the time, he was a professor of sociology and comparative religions, and he wasn't a believer. And he tracked the first 300 years of Christianity because it's well known in history that Christianity changed the world. So he tried to figure out what did it. He noted that eventually Rome wasn't overthrown. It actually became a Christian nation. So how did that happen? The church in those days had no political position. It, it couldn't vote in any type of change like this. But yet the changes just exploded. So how did it happen? And you had people like Nero killing the Christians. And yet the church just grew and grew. So how did it happen? How did they do that? So he traced it. And this is what he said. Abortion and infanticide was common in the Roman world. It was an accepted practice. It was often exercised when the child was female or had disabilities. People like Plato and Aristotle condoned leaving a child in the woods to die. Virtually all disabled or deformed babies were simply abandoned. If you were a girl, your chances of survival were minimal. And I don't know if you've ever read any history from that time, but it was all about male children, healthy male children. So if uh, a man had three beautiful daughters like I did, he would walk up to that baby, and if he turned his back on the child, the child was left to die. Isn't that amazing? But that's the culture that Christianity began in. So Christians didn't allow infanticide. They didn't allow abortion. They couldn't control what was happening outside their community, but they could certainly control what was going on inside their community. So they said, you know something? We're going to do things differently here. So the church valued women. The church protected children and the helpless in a culture where there were no values at all. Christian men were encouraged to love their wives, to value women, and, and also to provide and sacrifice and protect their families. Christian homes became the first orphanages and nurseries. And when the church began, there were no social services in the Roman Empire. There's nothing to help those who were in need, but the church took care of that as well. First of all, they took care of the needs of those within the church community, but then they even went beyond that, and they took care of the needs of the community in general. And then widows. Whenever a woman lost her husband, in that society, her only hope for survival was to marry again. But the church stepped in and the church said, look, if you don't want to marry, you're not going to have to do it that way. We'll help take care of you. And the list just goes on and on of the influence that the church had on that world. So eventually, society was so enamored by the church and the people within that community called the church that it changed everything. It changed their culture. And it wasn't because they could vote 
It wasn't because they could legislate change. Change came because the church was just being the church. So what would happen if the church was just the church? If the church was just the church and we did a better job of caring for the sick, would there be any debates over our health system? If the church was just the church and the institution of marriage was honored, then there would be complete commitment and the church would demonstrate what love looked like. And it wouldn't be so hard for our society to basically define what marriage is. If the church was just the church and did a better job of caring for the parentless and the single moms, you'd have to wonder what would take place with abortion and the rape that we have in our country. If the church was just the church and assured that no one went hungry among us and people were learning to take care of themselves and be responsible for themselves and their families, you'd have to wonder what would happen to our social system church was just the church. There's a book called Political Illusions, and the premise of the book is to trace the fact that people have always felt that political solutions are what we need for political problems, and it reveals how, ironically, that's just not true. People put their faith in politics and never find the answers. And Jesus speaks up and says, uh, I've got that position filled already. I'm the Savior. Don't look to anything else but me. So if Jesus could expand his kingdom, if God could do that even when Nero was emperor, it doesn't matter who's going to be prime minister of our country, God can still make his plan work. So here's what our hope is in. Our hope is in one person at a time accepting a Savior. Our hope is in Jesus changing people from the inside out. Our hope is in the Holy Spirit coming into people's lives and changing their hearts and making us moral people. Our hope is in the Word of God. It's in repentance. It's in revival. It's in heaven. It's in Christ while we live here in this world being salt and light for Him and waiting for our final destination and realizing our citizenship in heaven. You probably have the Lord's Prayer memorized, and you can quote it from memory. Uh, maybe you grew up in a church where it was said every week, and you grew to hate it, because it didn't really mean anything. It was just, but we're actually going to say it together this morning, and really mean it, but really say it out loud. I'm going to have it up on the screen here. If you don't have it memorized, you have permission to pray with your eyes open. That's quite okay. And then I have a few things to say after that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we also forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, that is the truth. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And it is our prayer that your kingdom and your will be done in this world, in our world. And would you keep reminding us of that truth, that you are the hope of the world. 
And would you help us to live as active and responsible citizens, being salt and light and making a difference? And give us the confidence, Father, that you are the King of kings and that you are the God who reigns. Father, we just pray this in your Son's name. Amen.